Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here. He's calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been four days dead. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lord God, as we hear this famous story, um, I ask that we could hear it anew, that we could see you anew as the one, Lord Jesus, who draws near to us is the one who is coming into the world, the Son of Man who calls us out of death into life. Be in our midst, Lord, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Welcome to St. Bart's. My name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here. Um, We are in the season of Lent. And this is sort of the last regular Sunday in Lent because next week is Palm Sunday and the Sunday after that is Easter. Uh, So we have this story in front of us that I want to spend some time talking about because we've spent the last few weeks in the Gospel of John. Uh, But I want to begin by uh, telling a little story. um, This last summer, my grandfather died and my grandmother asked me to officiate the funeral, which is a weird, uh, kind of a weird thing to do because... In a professional capacity, that's something that I've done before, sort of know what to do. But then it's your grandfather. And he was a very complicated man who had a very complicated relationship with his six children. 
including my mother. And I was at the funeral and you know, speaking, and he's you know, laid out. He was a, a veteran of the Air Force, decorated veteran of the Air Force, colonel, retired from the Air Force, so he's got the American flag draped over his casket there. And I can recall these details about his life. And in a sense, his life is, uh, if you're writing a hallmark script about the American dream, in a sense, his life could be that script. His parents, uh, his father was a Greek immigrant. And his mother was a German immigrant. He was born in Lincoln, Nebraska. He worked on the railroad. How American is that? <laughs> I've been working on the railroad all the live long day. Then he went into the military flew planes, retired from the military, was an engineer at Northrop Grumman, worked on the B-2 bomber, had six kids, retired to a lake house in Marietta, lots of grandkids, including dear old me. He was a very intelligent man, loved history, traced our family line back to the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So that is some serious genealogical work. He was a serious man, an intelligent man, uh, but he's also a difficult man. And he had a moment with my mom where he basically said, Jesus is my savior, but sometimes I don't follow him. Which as an Anglican priest, that's all I need, right? <laughs> Just something to hold on to in the sermon. But there he is, laid out, American flag draped on him. And the question is, in that moment, we've all been in those moments, is that all there is? Is that the end of the story? Is that all his legacy could be? Is what he did with his life? Or is there something beyond this moment? That's why this passage is often preached at funerals, especially Anglican funerals. If you go to an Anglican funeral, one of the first things that you will hear proclaimed by the officiant is, I am the resurrection and the life. What is God's answer to death? That's the question that hangs over our passage today, and it's a question that has followed us through Lent. Because on Ash Wednesday, when we are reminded of our death, we're not just reminded of a physical reality that life ends, but a spiritual reality that death is in the world because of sin. And we have Paul succinctly wrapping that in a bow for us today. The wages of sin is death. There is death because there is sin. Can Jesus deal with those twin problems? Can he deal with the enemy of sin? Can he deal with the enemy of death? So over the past few weeks, we've been in the Gospel of John and we've heard Jesus in intimate conversation. First with Nicodemus, then with the Samaritan woman, and then with the man born blind which we had last week, whom Jesus heals. There's an ascending quality to these conversations, a gradual unveiling of who Jesus is, both in who he says he is and what he does. Both in his words and his, his actions, he gradually unveils more and more of who he is. And the people that encounter him see more and more of him. So Nicodemus says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus acknowledges, oh, well, yeah, God's with you. The Samaritan woman says, 
Come and see the man who told me all I ever did. And then she asks, can this be the Christ? She takes a step even further than Nicodemus. And then the man born blind, once he is healed, he is the one who sees most clearly of all. Because Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, who is he so that I might believe in him? And Jesus says, I am he. And what does the man say? Lord, I believe. And then he worshiped him. So we have these conversations with Jesus, an unveiling of who he is, a declaration of his character. In his actions too, he shows who he is. And the man born blind confesses that he is Lord. And here we are in John chapter 11, which is the exact center of the gospel of John. It's the hinge moment. And it's the final of Jesus' seven signs, what he does for Lazarus. And Jesus, as the Gospel of John goes, reveals more about himself too. Just as the people come to see more about him, he reveals more of himself. So to Nicodemus, Jesus said, I am the son of man who will be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, and I will draw people to myself. To the Samaritan woman, she asks, are you the Christ? He said, I who speak to you am he. Jesus, in his, doing his best Yoda impression, And to the man born blind, he says, you have seen him, the Christ, and it is he who is speaking to you. So what does Jesus tell Nicodemus but that there is an offer of new life? He tells the Samaritan woman that there is water that truly satisfies, and he shows the blind man that he can bring light into darkness. Jesus says, in effect, I am true life, I am real satisfaction, and I am light. And again, these are not just statements because he declares who he is by what he does. He actually affects in the world through his words and his actions what he says. That's what it is to be the word who became flesh and dwells among us. The word who was with God, the word who is God, becomes flesh and dwells among us. And what do we know of God from page one, verse one of scripture, but that God's word affects what it says. Let there be light, and there is light. And the word who was with God is now in the world, in flesh, standing in front of all these people. Not just saying things, but doing things. And a man born blind being healed is a pretty great miracle, but there's still the thing that haunts us, which is death. And the question with Jesus is, can he deal with the thing that really haunts us? the thing that stalks us, the thing that inevitably comes for every one of us, can he deal with death? That's the question we take into this story. And as we move into the verses that we have today, it's not the whole story, it's a very long chapter. I encourage you to go read it and meditate on it uh, throughout the week, the first part of it, before he encounters Mary and Martha. But the verses that we have before us today, the first thing that we hear of is the mourners. Bethany was near Jerusalem, two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This is the best we have to offer people in their grief. Aside from God, we can just be with people. And it's no small thing. It matters. We should be with people. We should sit with them. We should mourn with them. But it's not really an answer. The mourners, all they can offer is their mourning. They can offer their compassion their empathy. 
But when Jesus shows up, Martha comes out to see him. And what does she say? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And, you know, commentators are all over the place about what tone of voice we're supposed to hear what she says in. Is it an accusation? Like, Jesus, why weren't you here? You could have made a difference. Or was there just a little bit more, more mournful? Like, man, I wish you would have been here because you could have made a difference. And we don't know exactly. But Martha tends to get vilified a little bit. So I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of repair for her because she believes the right things. She knows. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She believes, like many Jews of the day believed, that on the last and great day that God would raise the righteous back to life. She understands that there's hope for the future. But Jesus is not just there to give her hope for the future. He's there to give her hope for right now. Because he doesn't say, you're right, there will be a resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. And this is what is so important about this passage. Because even if we believe in resurrection as an event that waits for us, if we say it in the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, we can still get into this idea that it's an abstraction, that it's just something out there, and I don't know what it'll look like, but God's gonna do it. Jesus gives her a yes and. (laughs) Yeah, there's a resurrection. There's an event, but there's also a person. Resurrection is not just an event, it's a person. I am resurrection. I am life. That's what's followed us through the whole gospel of John. This promise of eternal life. What is that? It's to know him. That's the culmination of the gospel of John once we get through everything. What is eternal life but to know God and to know his son? Not an abstraction but a person. Not an event only but a relationship with him who is life. And Jesus stands before her as a human So the person who says this to her is a human being, fully human, human through and through. And what happens next shows us the depths of Jesus' humanity. Because now Mary hears that he's here and she runs and she falls at his feet and she weeps. A very human reaction to the death of a loved one, the death of her brother, In verse 33, we have this. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. What does it mean that he was greatly troubled? He was agitated, we might say. He was angry. We might even say he was outraged. And what is he outraged at? Death itself. He's a human being. He knows that this is our great problem, our great enemy. He knows the pain and the sundering of death that always comes, the the grief that it causes. And here is a family that he knows well, that he loves deeply, and he is deeply moved and greatly troubled. 
And then the most extraordinary thing of all, he weeps. How human is that? In the face of death, in the face of grief and suffering, as a human being to weep. He weeps. He weeps and he's just said, I am resurrection and life. We know the end of the story. What is the meaning of these tears? How do we understand what they are? Well, on one level, his weeping is human weeping. He weeps for the ordeal of pain and death, for the consequences of sin. He's weeping for his friends, whom he loves. But there's a very real sense in which we can also say that his weeping is divine weeping. Jesus tells us that if we've seen him, we see the Father, that he does what the Father does. Are these the tears of the Father for the world? God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There's his mission statement right there. And who gave him that mission statement but his Father? These are divine tears as well. These are the tears of God for the world that he is determined to save, not from outside the world, but from within the world. Within the pain, within the suffering, within the very flesh that he took on in his incarnation. Jesus takes on the worst that the world can offer in terms of suffering and death in order to redeem the world. So Jesus wept. Uh, This last Tuesday we had public theology and we were talking about Mako Fujimura's book, Culture Care. Um, He's an artist. um, And he's worth thinking about whether you are interested in art or not. And in his book, Art and Faith, he has a long meditation on Jesus' tears. And one of the things that he says is that Jesus' tears are gratuitous, but not in the sense that you might think. Because the word gratuitous has two meanings. One meaning of gratuitous is unnecessary or unwarranted, lacking good reason. As in, John Wick 4 has a lot of gratuitous violence. Gratuitous can mean unnecessary, but it can also mean extra gracious gift. Jesus' tears for the world are a gracious gift to us. To see that God is not far removed from our pain, not far removed from our suffering, but he is, has a front row seat for it. They're gratuitous. They show us the compassion of God and his determination to save the ones he loves. And then we have Jesus moving to the tomb and the stone is rolled away and he prays once more, not because he doesn't think God will hear him, but because he wants the people to hear, because he wants the people to know what's about to happen. In John chapter five, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come out. He's about to show us. This is the sign. This is his seventh sign. What does he say? Lazarus, I'm gonna quote it in the KJV. Lazarus, come forth, because I like that. Lazarus, come forth, come out. Come out of the darkness, come out of death, step back into light, step back into life. That's the sign to which all the rest of his work has been pointing to. 
All the other six signs culminate in this sign. We all know that seven is an important number. This seventh sign is the sign of life, the sign of resurrection. Jesus' first sign, his first miracle, is changing the water into wine. What does he do at that wedding feast? He takes the water of purification and he turns it into the wine of celebration. He takes something ordinary and elevates it to the extraordinary. And it's abundant and it is overflowing and it is uh, excellent. This is the best wine. That first sign gives us a sense of what Jesus wants for us. He wants abundance, he wants life, he wants joy. He wants to bring us as his bride to him, the true bridegroom. That's the point of that story. But for him to do that, he has to deal with death. And this seventh sign shows us how he deals with death. He says, I am resurrection. Lazarus, come forth. But here's the thing. The sign is still just a sign. Not just a sign, it's really important. But as all of us who've thought about this story know, Lazarus still dies on the other end of this. Poor old Lazarus doesn't even get a line in this story. (laughs) He dies again because the sign is a sign pointing to what? The fullness of the reality of what it means for Jesus to say, I am resurrection. All his signs, even this one, point outward to something deeper and something even more fundamental. And even though this is the final sign, it's the one that unlocks the rest of the signs, like I said. But in the end, it is Jesus' own death and his own resurrection that secures the reality of the other seven signs. He has to go through death himself. That's the deep, deep mystery of the cross is not just that Jesus is able to move towards us and have compassion on us and weep with us, but that he is willing to undergo suffering, death, shame, in order to secure for us the life that he promises. How is it that Jesus can offer us the wine of the wedding feast, what we have in his first sign? It's because he is the true bridegroom who is willing to purchase his bride with the price of his own life. That's why. How is able to say that he is resurrection? Because he is the one who entrusts himself totally through to his father and passes into death knowing that his father has promised to meet him on the other side of it. That he passes through death and comes out the other side. This is a culminating Lent passage because that's exactly what we will take on next Sunday as we hear the passion narrative read to us as we, as a crowd, cry out, crucify him, we're implicated in death and in sin, and yet Jesus says to us, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. He has to move into death, he has to come out the other side. That's the promise of Palm Sunday, that's the promise of Easter Sunday that waits for us. But the question for us now, like the gut level question is, as we wait for the fullness of resurrection, what does resurrection look like now? How does this promise of new life and new creation break into our lives now? I mentioned Mako Fujimura. There's a video on YouTube where he goes to Japan 
and he talks to um, a tea master. So I'm instantly interested. I am clicking that so hard. Artist in Japan, tea, great. The algorithm knows me. Um, this tea master is also a master of an art called kintsugi, which is <clears throat> the practice of taking broken tea vessels and binding them together. And they bind them together with tea lacquer and gold. So, and the idea in the Japanese aesthetic is that the thing that was broken becomes even better and even more valuable because it was put back together with something so precious. And Fujimura suggests that Jesus' tears are kind of like the gold that binds the broken things together in us. That's a promise of resurrection in the midst of life. It's just a taste. We're waiting for the fullness when he says to all of creation, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> but he hasn't said it yet. But we do have his spirit working in and through us to put broken things back together. And I'd encourage you to go, just, just Google an image of a kintsugi bowl where these artists who take broken things and put them back together are intentional and creative in the way that they use the gold to draw attention to the fact that this thing was broken and now it's not. That's the promise of resurrection in life now, that we still serve a God who draws near to us, who speaks light into darkness and life into death, and who says to us, come out. The final image we have of Lazarus is that he is bound in his grave clothes and he has to be unwrapped. That's kind of the Christian life. We've been invited into new life and the process of becoming holy and sanctified and living this hard life sometimes is that those grave clothes have to get unwrapped over time. But they can be unwrapped and the life that we have is real life. So as we move out of the season of Lent and into Holy Week, my encouragement to you is to draw near to the God who has drawn near to us. I once went on this prayer retreat where I um, was invited to meditate on a, the passion. And one of the things that the retreat director said is like, imagine yourself in the scene and what you're gonna wanna do is try to do something, is try to stop it. Don't, just watch. Because what is necessary for my salvation and yours is that Jesus has to go through that. And we'll see that on Good Friday with the 14 stations of the cross. And I encourage you, if you can't be at those services, just take that time, that Holy Week time, to draw near to the one who's drawn near to you. Let me close in prayer. Lord, um, I thank you for this story that's not just a story. I thank you for this sign that's not just a sign. I thank you that the promise of resurrection is not just an event, but you yourself drawing near to us. We thank you that you have become flesh and dwelt among us and that you've moved through death and come out the other side. I pray that you would give us eyes to see places in our relationships, in our own lives where you are taking broken things and putting them back together in only the way that you can. 
Lord, be with us as we journey with you toward the cross. And I pray, Lord, that as a community we could experience fresh and anew what it is that you have accomplished for us in your son. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.